When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. On the 10th of April, 1998, Good Friday, the UK Prime Minister Tony Blair and the Irish Taoiseach Bertie Ahern signed an agreement that marked the end of 30 years of extreme sectarian conflict in Northern Ireland. There are provisions for fairness and for equality, for recognition that all traditions in Northern Ireland are valid and deserve respect and dignity. There will be an assembly for the good governance of Northern Ireland, and the British and Irish governments have come together in a new and more mature relationship for the future, one that reflects better the common sense of the nations side by side with so much to share and so much to exchange. And we are seeking to replace the hatreds and fears of so many years where people misunderstand each other before they even think or try with a reawakening, however tentative and however cautious, of fellowship and of trust. But how did Northern Ireland's troubles originally come about? Why did the warring parties agree to ceasefires? And what were the terms of the so-called Good Friday Agreement? To answer the big questions about this seminal moment, History Hits' Rob Weinberg went to Queen's University Belfast to talk to Dr Peter McLaughlin. This is How and Why History. Peter, thanks for joining us. No problem. How would you define, in brief, the Troubles in Northern Ireland? That's probably the toughest question. It's a very complex conflict, which is why it went on so long and it was so hard to resolve. But it's really a conflict between two different national groups. Some people will confuse it as being really essentially a religious conflict because we tend to even use those terms, still Catholic and Protestant. But really it's a conflict between two different national peoples. British and Irish, people who feel that they're British and people who feel that they're Irish. Where it becomes complicated and and seems to overlap with religion is that it it tends to be that the vast majority of Catholics in Northern Ireland feel Irish and aspire to some kind of either a united Ireland or to some better association with the Republic of Ireland, whereas most Protestants tend to feel British and refer themselves as Unionists because they want to maintain the union with Great Britain and to preserve their identity that way. So in essence, it's about two different political or national identities. But as I say, for historical reasons, religion overlaps and there are other social and economic factors that I could go into if you choose. What sort of numbers are we talking about percentage-wise in terms of the Catholic population and the Protestant population? The figures are a little disputed now because originally when Northern Ireland was formed, which is 100 years ago, uh, you were talking roughly a third of the population was Catholic and two-thirds was Protestant, so a very clear majority. 
you're getting up to something much more like equality now. Probably in Belfast itself, you are pretty much 50-50, but it's different in different parts of Northern Ireland, and what complicates it is the case in other parts of the world now. People are less likely to say that they are a particular religion or a particular national identity. People feel that that associates them with negative nationalisms, and so we'll say that they are neither, neither British or Irish, neither Catholic or Protestant. So there's a significant group which claims now to be other or non-aligned which makes it kind of hard to know exactly, but you're getting something near now between equality in terms of numbers. So when we refer to the Troubles, is that a particular specific period of conflict in Northern Ireland's history? It is. It tends to refer to the modern conflict being 1968, partially in response to the civil rights movement. And then some people would tend to date it ending with the Good Friday Agreement, the settlement that we still have here, as formally bringing it into the majority of the, the conflict and the problems that, that were underlying that. But it's, it's not perfectly resolved and, and not perfectly clear in that regard. But generally, 1968 to 1998, yes. And the impact of the Troubles affected everyone in Northern Ireland. But how many active participants were there actually in, say, paramilitary groups? Again, that's something that it would be very hard to know because for very good reasons, not everyone would own up to that because they were illegal paramilitaries. But most people were affected in some way by the conflict, most families in some way. But there are parts of Northern Ireland where, where there was limited conflict and where everyday life went on as elsewhere. But you're talking in, in the thousands over the many decades of, of people who would have been involved in the paramilitaries on both sides, Republican or Irish nationalist paramilitaries and loyalists or pro-Union, pro-British paramilitaries. And then, of course, they're not the only actors. You're talking then about the security services, which includes the British Army and the police and so on here as well. And what were the death toll numbers? Just over three and a half thousand, which might not seem an awful lot, but then we should remember that Northern Ireland is quite a small place. It's got a population what similar to Birmingham, I guess, or something like that. That it's if you scale that up to a UK-wide population, that's well over half a million. So, for such a small society, and even Belfast, the largest city, is is still a quite a small city. That's quite a significant figure. So, just over three and a half thousand were killed, and many, many more injured as well. So, in terms of there are far bigger conflicts, obviously, even going on in the world today in Syria and such like, very tragically. But in Western European terms, or just generally in Western terms, this was quite an exception to have such an enduring ethnic conflict go on that, that took so many lives and caused so many injuries and indeed so much economic devastation too. When did the early stages of a peace process begin and how important were the UK Prime Minister John Major and the Irish Prime Minister Albert Reynolds to the early stages? Again, the idea of when the peace process began will be debated by some. I mean, the way you're referring there to John Major and Albert Reynolds, that's quite a useful way of thinking about it because people tend to think about it as being the 1990s beginning then. And arguably those two prime ministers or, or the prime minister and the Taoiseach, the Irish term for prime minister, they were involved in the Downing Street Declaration in 1993, which kind of can be seen as, as a formal launching point for the peace process. Basically outlining the two positions of the two governments, the British and Irish governments, and the terms in which they hoped conflicting actors would agree to a process of compromise and negotiation and give up armed struggle. So 1993 might be seen as a, as a date that really launched the peace process, but you could analyse it going further back. I personally would argue it goes back into at least the late 80s, if not 1985, the Anglo-Irish Agreement, which I think is really the foundation. But the 90s is what people tend to refer to as the peace process. So the 1990s culminating in the Good Friday Agreement. Although, again, people would feel that we still talk about a peace process now because we don't have a reconciled society, arguably. 
What was the Anglo-Irish Agreement? That, in ways, was, I would argue, a precursor to the Good Friday Agreement. So it's 1985, and Prime Minister at the time was Margaret Thatcher, and the Irish Taoiseach was Garrett Fitzgerald. And why I argue that's fundamental to what follows is it's really the British and Irish governments doing a deal over Northern Ireland. And they were sorting out their relationships and their different attitudes to the problem and trying to jointly manage the problem. I went into this agreement because I was not prepared to tolerate a situation of continuing violence. I want to offer hope to young people particularly that the cycle of violence and conflict can be broken. Our purpose is to secure equal recognition and respect for the two identities in Northern Ireland. Nationalists can now raise their heads knowing that their position is and is seen to be on an equal footing with that of members of the unionist community. What in essence the deal was about was the British government allowing the Irish government to have a say in Northern Ireland. A very limited say and I should stress that but very still very upsetting for unionists because they saw this as an increasing move towards a united Ireland. So for some moderate nationalists were in favour for that reason. But what it really did is it allowed, in a way, the Irish government to speak for nationalists who were the minority here and who were underrepresented and who didn't feel that they, as unionists, well, they were still part of the UK, it was their flag and so on, so they still felt whatever the conflict, their identity was respected, whereas it really involved the Irish government being involved, speaking for the nationalist position and uh, trying to reform Northern Ireland. And that did begin with 1985, that you started to get the British and Irish governments starting to cooperate in changing things, getting rid of discrimination and other things that would disadvantage the nationalist Catholic community. And that, I would argue, created the basis then for the more radical change that follows in the 1990s. In the 1990s, what was it that brought the two main nationalist parties, the SDLP and Sinn Féin, to call a ceasefire? That, again, I would relate to the Anglo-Irish agreements. Now, it's more complex. There are many, many reasons why you've got a movement towards the peace process. Focusing just on the, on the IRA and why it called a ceasefire. Well, two main reasons. One is that the IRA realised they could not win. They were not going to achieve a united Ireland, their, their main aim, by armed struggle, and that they realised political means would produce more change in a nationalist direction. But just as important, so they're not ranked in any order, is the British government recognising that it could not defeat the IRA, that it could not bring about peace and stability in Northern Ireland without radically changing politics in Northern Ireland and giving recognition to the nationalist position, which I would argue began with the Anglo-Irish Agreement and involving the Irish government, but to continue in that direction towards what you get with the Good Friday Agreement, that nationalists have complete equality in Northern Ireland and that they have an equal say in government and that their social and economic rights are protected and so on. So it also took the British government realising that there wasn't simply a military solution. Just as Republicans realised there couldn't be a military solution, so the British state realised that it was going to have to fundamentally change Northern Ireland, which was a difficult thing to do because historically it was reliant on the unionist population, the majority, and any changes it did make that worried the unionist population were very difficult to enact. In the last few weeks, we've seen the IRA gun down a young army wife sitting alone in her car. And in Britain, We've seen them bomb the young musicians in the Royal Marines Band. Some can't wait to put the blame on security arrangements as though they were somehow responsible for these appalling crimes. Let us pin the responsibility to where it belongs on the common murderers of the IRA. 
Margaret Thatcher famously said that her government would never negotiate with terrorists. But were there discussions going on that people didn't know about? Yes, that was crucial. In a way, I would say it evidences what I've said, that both sides, the Republican movement and the British state, realised they could not win by military means. Therefore, they engaged in secret talks because the talks were about how do you move beyond conflict? But you can't, you know, you don't talk to your opponent if you feel you can defeat them. That was the seeds of the peace processes. The Republican movement and the British state having private discussions, they had to be private because of the perception, yes, that, that this was a terrorist movement and that the British state had formally said it would never speak to terrorists. But that did happen under, again, we can't be absolutely certain about the dates because the talks were not between ministers at this point, they were between essentially the security services to begin with and, and, the, and the Republican movement. But this was authorised by the Tory government and very likely by Margaret Thatcher that this was sanctioned by her to open up a channel of communication with the Republican movement to see if, if a political way forward and some form of compromise could be found. So unbeknown to the public, yeah, there were talks going on from the late 1980s. So again, that feeds into what John Major later did. How critical were the United States to the peace process, in particular US Senator George Mitchell? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The USA was absolutely fundamental. It's crucial. Fundamentals may be too strong a word because the changes were happening in Northern Ireland. But where they were crucial is in facilitating, allowing that change to progress in a better direction. And George Mitchell, who was chair of the peace talks, so, so acted as, as essentially a kind of a, a neutral arbiter in, in the talks between the British and Irish governments and, and nationalists and Eunice, was very important in that. I don't think you would have had a, a peace deal at least so early without that US intervention. 
But again, you could argue that the, the US role goes much, much further back and that there were very important shifts at the behest of Irish America. It's not so much or not so simply just the American government. It's the fact that there was a very significant Irish community in America, which for a long time was very sympathetic to the nationalist position, indeed even sympathetic to the Republican position in the 1970s. A lot of the funding for the IRA was from some sympathisers in Irish America. So there was a very important change in Irish America as well, which also led to that diaspora group being more supportive of political aims and that, that pushed towards a situation where the Clinton administration and, and, and he appointed George Mitchell uh, played a very vital role in facilitating the talks. But again, America was for a long time trying to encourage a much more political attitude to dealing with the problem in Northern Ireland. We mentioned that there were a number of ceasefires. Did they hold initially? So some ceasefires even go back to the 1970s, which didn't last very long and which didn't make much progress in terms of the talks associated with them. But what we talk about is the peace process in the 90s. The IRA had a ceasefire in August 1994, and that was within about six weeks, followed by the main loyalist groups ceasing fire. Those ceasefires held, at least on the loyalist side completely, but on the Republican side, to early 1996, at which point Republicans, in their opinion, felt that there wasn't sufficient political progress being made by John Major's government. And John Major's government was in a weak position at that time. It was relying, as we've seen more recently, on unionist votes to keep in power. So there was a stalling of the peace process and Republicans, very unhappy with that, feel that they were being duped and returned to armed struggle. So that ceasefire broke down and was restored then in 1997 with the election of a Labour government, which Tony Blair's huge landslide majority meant that it wasn't reliant on unionist votes and could be far more proactive and assertive in pushing the process forward. How important was Mo Molum, who was Tony Blair's Northern Ireland secretary? Again, a very important actor, uh, indeed the first female Northern Ireland secretary and, and a very, very important role she played in trying to move things forward. But again, I would stress that a lot of the hard work had been done already in terms of the essential parameters of a deal by the various actors I've mentioned, including the Tory government up until then. But what the new Labour government came in with a huge majority and with a very dynamic young Prime Minister, don't forget, and a very dynamic Northern Ireland secretary, who as well was an academic, was well versed in the, actually the theory of consociationalism, which is the political science term for, for power sharing, what we have in Northern Ireland today. So someone who actually had a PhD and really understood how you have to have in a divided society in Northern Ireland, you have to have that kind of power sharing and... and uh, Mo Merlin was quite radical in the things she did as well. One of the most famous incidents, controversial incidents, was where there was a chance that the Loyalist ceasefire would break down and she actually chose to go into the May's prison uh, and meet with Loyalist paramilitary leaders, so those who'd been in, in charge of this campaign, which had led to the deaths of many Catholics, and effectively tried to reassure them that this wasn't just about Republicans and nationalists and their rights, and that the loyalist position and identity was going to be respected in any talks, that whatever the deal would be acceptable to all sides, and managed to get the loyalist commanders to agree to keep that ceasefire. So, as I say, very controversial for the victims of, of loyalist violence, as, of course, the British government talking to Republicans was very controversial for the victims of, of Republican violence. So it took very brave moves by Tony Blair, by Mo Merlin, to move that forward and to get the Good Friday Agreement. Was the OMA bombing in August 1998 seen as the last straw for many people on both sides? The OMA bombing followed a few months after the Good Friday Agreement and was essentially perpetrated by what we call dissident Republicans, so Republicans who'd broke away from the main 
group of the IRA and Sinn Féin and who were opposed to the peace process, who were opposed to any deal which didn't deliver a united Ireland. And the bombinoma, which was very indiscriminate, that it was essentially a bomb in a market town that killed both Catholic and Protestant and indeed international visitors, Spanish, some Spanish victims and so on, it was the largest death toll of any single bomb. It actually came after the Good Friday Agreement, which is why we have to be careful in saying the troubles ended with the Good Friday Agreement. But what it actually did, contrary to what the dissidents hoped for, I imagine, was to galvanise people behind the Good Friday Agreement. The devastation is unbelievable. Anybody that can think they can justify this, they're not Irish, they're animals. And um, the people didn't deserve this, Noma. They didn't deserve it. They don't deserve it anywhere. There's so many casualties and so many dead. So it was, uh, like all the acts, a very sickening act, but it actually, in a some way, bolstered the resolve, particularly of the political leaders of David Trimble, the unionist leader at that time, and, and Seamus Mallon was the nationalist leader in the, in the proposed executive and it really emboldened them to make sure the Good Friday Agreement wouldn't be defeated by those who clearly were trying to defeat it. And so it, it helped endorse what had already happened. I think it's fair to say it's difficult to talk about it as being the last straw because I think you could always say the majority of people in Northern Ireland didn't want the violence. It was always a minority perpetrating it. And indeed that was shown by the, the dual referendum in both parts of Ireland, massively endorsing the deal. But what the Omer bomb did is it took away any residual sympathy for those who had still those very radical agenda of a forcing a united Ireland by violent means. And so I would argue very tragically, unfortunately, but did it help bolster the peace process in a certain indirect way. So what were the terms of the Good Friday Agreement? The main aspect of the Good Friday Agreement is the power sharing agreements, bringing together nationalist and unionist, the two main ethnic or national blocks in Northern Ireland to share power and to mean whatever is done or decided in Northern Ireland they have to agree on. So it's giving equality in that sense. But there are various other aspects to it. First of all, there is what we call a north-south dimension. There were various institutions which linked Northern Ireland with the Republic of Ireland, which as nationalists wanted those kind of links to kind of give institutional recognition of their Irish identity and indeed for some nationalists felt that was a way of increasing cooperation between North and South in common areas of tourism or health or whatever and that that would help persuade unionists that, that, that you know there was sense in having an all-Ireland economy or, or an all-Ireland some kind of political uh, association. So that was for nationalists to kind of balance the fact that Northern Ireland remained part of the United Kingdom. And indeed there were also East-West structures, there were new political structures that involved not just the Northern Ireland government and the British Irish governments, but all of the devolved regions. 1998 was also devolution to Scotland and Wales. So it involved all of these different groups and gave a more of a British Isles feel, what Eunice would refer to as the British Isles, that, that it was in a way bringing Northern Ireland back into the fold in that regard and balancing the North-South All-Ireland dimension. So there's those main constitutional aspects, but there's a lot more to it in terms of fully guaranteeing social and economic equality in every regard, reforming policing, which was absolutely crucial to change the police force, which was overwhelmingly Protestant and therefore unionist, to have a much more balanced force, to reform the way our judicial practices work, and various other ways in which trying to address the needs of victims, ensure equality not just in terms of Catholic and Protestant national unions, but women's rights and disabilities. So it's, it's quite a radical document that was very comprehensive in trying to ensure that there could never be discrimination in any way in Northern Ireland and also tried to balance those two different identities. One of the key challenges, and we've seen it more recently, is that it didn't fully resolve the issue of should there be United Ireland in the future or stay part of the United Kingdom. What it did instead was allowed a vote in Northern Ireland to decide that. 
so it's really given up to future generations that if you choose to vote for a united ireland then there can be a united ireland as long as it's achieved by peaceful means but that if a majority want to remain part of the united kingdom that will be the case as well so that was seen as really the only solution the only democratic solution but as we saw then with brexit that that kind of was destabilizing because it, it again raises up this idea of should Northern Ireland stay part of the United Kingdom if the United Kingdom is leaving Europe and, and the kind of economic challenges that will no doubt create. So the Good Friday Agreement has more recently been tested by Brexit, uh, although it was a very comprehensive, arguably very successful agreement, in my opinion, in trying to address the very multiple reasons why there was conflict. Words matter. Details are vital. Drafting is crucial. We've been through that many times in the last few days, as we know well. But I want to say this to the politicians and to the people of Northern Ireland with all the force that I can muster. Even now, this will not work unless in your will and in your mind you make it work. Unless we extend the hand of friendship to those who were once foes. Unless before we condemn, we at least try to see the other side. Unless we take it into our hearts that others can reach different conclusions in just as good faith as we reach our own conclusions. This is the choice that humanity has to make in every age, between the daring that crosses new frontiers and allows us to make progress, or the timidity that shuts itself away in seclusion where we stagnate. Has sectarian violence ended because of the Good Friday Agreement? Overwhelmingly, yes. The, the, the vast majority of sectarian violence and, and the main paramilitary groups, not only did they maintain their ceasefires there afterwards, but as part of the Good Friday Agreement, they also decommissioned their weapons, that you have nothing like that threat now from paramilitary actors and all the changes that have come through it, policing reform and everything, has consolidated that. So the, the main paramilitary groups do not exist anymore, or certainly not in the same way. That doesn't mean that that kind of violence has been completely removed. There are, as we mentioned, dissidents with very little support, much, much more limited support than the provisional IRA ever had. And similarly, on the loyalist side, there are the loyalist paramilitaries or those, depending on your perspective and the way the police would probably characterise it, these have kind of evolved into essentially criminal groups or gangs. And that while there may be some kind of political representation or political kind of posturing that, that some of this is about controlling areas and so on. You could see it as similar to gangs in other major urban contexts, whether that's in Britain or America. So there is still that residual paramilitary activity, but it's nothing like it was in the past. There's not the broad scale sectarian conflict. That doesn't mean that there aren't still significant sectarian tensions and that there are still disputes over whether it was Brexit more recently or whether it's parades or um, changes to flags and emblems in Northern Ireland, those things can still be very divisive. And so you could argue that you have a peaceful society, but not a reconciled society. Not a, it's still a deeply divided society, I would argue, Belfast particularly, but lots of other parts of Northern Ireland where that division still exists. And so uh, the Good Friday Agreement has stabilised and consolidated peace but some would argue that there's still a lot to be done in terms of actually reconciling the two different people in Northern Ireland. Peter McLaughlin, thank you very much for joining us. No problem, thank you. How and why history? Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 